I would like to certainly express my appreciation for the invitation. And it's been a very, very fine week for my wife and me. And uh, we uh, certainly appreciated our association with you. We hope we've been a blessing among you. Um, I wonder if I may ask Barbara to play one more time and have us stand to sing because we have, you know, the, the, the uh, lecture time is rather long. And I thought, I'm going to get my chance. <laughs> and it's now, number 256. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me. Uh, sort of a prayer before we look at the scripture for the last time, our last sessions this morning. Please stand to sing the four stanzas, number 256. Zechariah, chapter 4, 5, and 6. Now, I hope to uh, move along through chapter 4 and to about the middle of chapter 5 in this first uh, session together and then move on from there through chapter 6. And I think we will have covered the eight visions, the night visions of the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4, the reading of God's word follows, remembering that what we hear is God's word to which we are called to respond with obedience and listen with attentiveness. Then the angel who talked with me returned and awakened me as a man is wakened from his sleep. He asked me, What do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it, with seven channels to the lights. Also there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? He answered, Do you not know what these are? No, my lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range throughout the earth. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? Again I asked him, What are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, Do you not know what these are? No, my lord, I said. So he said, These are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. May the Lord add his blessing to this word and enable us to understand and believe it.
Um, we're going to go somewhat verse by verse through this passage and uh, try to indicate what the symbolism means and you will see then that everything will coalesce into an understanding of the whole of the passage. Um, this this uh, instruction from the angel proceeds just a little differently from the previous ones. In the previous visions, the angel simply says, or it simply says, I heard the word of the Lord, or it was revealed unto me, or he sh then he showed me Joshua the high priest. But here, uh, the angel talked with me and returned and wakened me as a man is wakened from his sleep. It's probably just a stylistic matter, uh, just a way of... Uh, uh, changing the style so that the attention is retained and the introduction into the uh, passage is given. But it does also remind us that these are not dreams. Now, we grouped visions and dreams somewhat together as uh, mediums of God's self-disclosure, but there are some slight differences. Uh, in a dream, the recipient of the message is much more passive. You recall... Uh, uh, Jacob had a dream of this ladder that reached from earth to heaven. And it wasn't until he was awake and reflected on the dream that the impact uh, uh, was evident in what he was re revealed. Whereas if one is awake, there's a, there's a more of an immediacy about it. And it's almost as though Zechariah, as he writes this, wants to remind us that he is fully aware of what's going on. He, he's startled awake and then he sees. And, of course, uh, it's a question that follows. The messenger angel says, what do you see? It's always good, you know, to ask questions. It's a, a marvelous pedagogical tool because if you ask questions, the, the, que the, one, the person who's questioned has to reflect and has to respond actively. And so that's a very good pedagogical method. And here it happens all the time in this chapter. What do you see? If we're forced to describe what we see, we have to concentrate our attention much more clearly than if someone simply describes it for us and we passively take it in. I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it with seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. So that's the... That's what he sees in this vision. Uh, I don't happen to have very good, art, very well-developed artistic uh, ability. I used to say I don't, didn't have artistic talent. And I said that to the wrong person once, an art teacher. And she became rather vigorous. And she said, how do you know? Have you had any instruction? Everyone has some artistic ability. And she said, oh, hold it, hold it. Okay, okay, okay. Well... So now I say, I, my, whatever artistic ability I have has not been well developed. <laughs> and if I showed you my grade school grade, uh, report cards, uh, it was always the lowest grade. First we call it art and then drawing and whatever. But I tried. <laughs> Don't laugh. Don't laugh. Um... My, you're a very mature group. <laughs> you know, I should have made a transparency like these others. Then I have a time to do a little thing. Well, 
Okay, I'm going to try to show it to you. This in the center is supposed to be the lampstand. You know, when we think of a, the word here, lampstand, in Hebrew is... I heard it. Menorah. Menorah. But when you think of a menorah, you think of this uh, seven, what, branch thing? Well, do you know that that menorah, the menorah we're accustomed to, we have one of these too. We bought a few for the kids when we were in the Holy Land. They're very nice, uh, what do you call them, remembrances? But the menorah that we know today dates only back to the first century B.C. No evidences of of the menorah that we know today uh, date back earlier than that. And here we're we're talking about 520, aren't we? Approximately B.C. Uh, But archaeologists have discovered a lot of menorahs that look more like this. A cylinder, just a cylinder, about two feet high. Uh, a cylinder like this with a bowl at the top. I think I'm better at describing than I am at drawing. <laughs> with a, a, a large bowl at the top. And uh, this bowl happens to have uh, seven lights on it. Well, a light or a lamp, as we would probably understand it now, was, uh, was simply a, a receptacle for oil with a, 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 a position for a wick to hang out of it. And these very early ones simply were made out of clay and one spot or more spots were simply pinched together while, or nearly together uh, to allow something like, you know, we used to have ashtrays around. Fortunately, we have fewer and fewer of those. And uh, there used to be little, little clips where a cigarette could fit in. You know, it's something like that, a squeezed portion. And the wick simply hung out and one end was in the oil and the other end hung out and that that was lighted. And that's why when you have some of these uh, uh, discoveries, you find it all black around the spot where the wick hung out. Well, this one, I'm not even going to show you this anymore then. I'll just describe it. I may pass it around after. At break. (laughs) At break, maybe one of you can draw me up one rather rapidly, much more. The bowl at the top in this one had seven lights on it or seven little lamps on its edges. And on each of these small lamps was seven places for wicks. So it was quite a bright light. You know, the more, the more light you needed, the more wicks hung out of the original. So there were seven times seven or 49 wicks uh, hanging out of these lamps uh, in the bowl. This is the vision that he sees now. Incidentally, uh, lampstands similar to that have been discovered. I wrote a few of those places down. I'm better at that than drawing, you see. Uh, at Gezer in southwest Palestine in 1954, a lampstand of this similar description was, was discovered. And also in um, Dan, and I only mention these two because Gezer is in the southwest, and Dan is somewhat in the north. So this kind of, these kinds of lamps were, were quite common throughout, throughout Palestine. Uh, so this lampstand uh, has a, lot, a rather brilliant light with 49 little flames at the top. That's what he sees in this vision. And then next to this lampstand are two olive trees. 
And uh, the olive trees, it says uh, a little later, uh, are above the lampstand. Now, the word above literally means overshadowing. So you have this picture in your mind, do you? A cylindrical base with a big bowl at the top and uh, seven uh, smaller bowls. And then there are tubes that reach into the large bowl where the major supply of the oil is present. So, and well, of course, uh, 49 wicks can absorb a lot of oil, but there's plenty of supply because it's olive oil that was used and you have two trees right next to the lampstand, uh, an unlimited supply virtually in relationship to the need of that one lampstand. And so there you have the essential elements of the vision proper. Uh, verse 3 says... Also, there are two olive trees by it, uh, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Now, some translations uh, use the term uh, above, above it, because that, uh, that short word in Hebrew can be interpreted both ways. Here it simply says by it, above it, it uh, suggests overshadowing it. Well... Uh, what does this mean? Well, we'll await that just a little bit, except that you know that anointing oil in the scriptures has reference to the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We don't identify the oil with the Spirit. No, there's something else later in the chapter that will identify, be much more closely identified with the, uh, with the Holy Spirit, which is, of course, breath or ruah. But oil is symbolic of the, uh, of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the kings were anointed with oil and the priests were anointed with oil and the prophets were sometimes anointed with oil as well. Well, of course, uh, naturally, um, Zechariah wants, is inquisitive now and he wonders, what does this mean? He, this is now the sixth one, isn't it? And he wonders, what, what, is, what is the meaning of all of this? So he said, so we read, I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel comes back with a tender mm, sort of reprimand, as though he should have known. The angel says, do you not know what these are? To which Zechariah, Zechariah replies, um, no, my Lord. You know, admission of um, ignorance is really the first step to knowledge and wisdom, isn't it? And it's demonstrated here. Submissive to the messenger uh, come from the Lord, and he uh, readily admits. He doesn't suggest, oh yeah, I know, I'm a, I'm a mature prophet. Uh, I can understand what's going on here. But he says, no, my Lord. So he said to me, and now this is the interpretation of what the symbolism stands for. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. I don't know if um, the person who requested the number, uh, not to the strong is the battle, not, well, is that how it, not, not to the swift is the race, had read the, this chapter, but immediately I thought, as soon as we started singing that, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And we'll have to go uh, one verse more 
what are you, O mighty mountain? Because this is part of the content of this uh, explanation. Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Now let's try to understand this uh, by way of interpretation. The olive trees stand for Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua, was his task was described in chapter 3. Remember? The anointing of the high priest with the new turban on his head, holy unto the Lord, uh, dirty robes removed, clean robes of righteousness replaces him. The two olive trees are representative of the leadership, the God-ordained leadership within the covenant community. Joshua the priest, Zerubbabel the king. And of course, Zechariah, who is reporting this, who is the messenger, is the prophet. So right here you have prophet, priest, and king demonstrated uh, in, in one chapter. And uh, the message to the, the message in chapter 4 is directed to Zerubbabel. We haven't been introduced to him yet. And I'm going to uh, introduce him after just a bit to ask who that fellow is and where did he come from so we understand in the history of redemption where his role is to be uh, filled. But the message to uh, this man Zerubbabel is not by might. That uh, Hebrew word, ha-yil, is the Hebrew word, uh, represents military power or an army of workers, not by might, nor by power. That word has reference to the physical strength of workers. So uh, the, the might has reference to more of a, uh, of a numerical power, and the power dimension has reference to more to physical strength, but both at the human plane, at the human level. So not by human uh, accumulation of numerical superiority, nor by the muscular strength that they may represent, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The, the word spirit here in the original is ruah, and that's very significant because the word ruah sometimes means breath or wind and sometimes has reference to the spirit of the Lord. And, but usually the context will help us understand. Now here, all uh, faithful translations have reference to the spirit of the Lord. And uh, the word ruah is used frequently in the Old Testament uh, in direct reference to the work of the, of the Spirit of God himself. I'm going to give you some illustrations. Right off the bat, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we read, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God, the Ruah, that would be R-U-A-H, the Ruah of God was hovering over the waters. Now that, of course, has to be reference to the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God because only God existed at that point in history. It can't possibly be anything else. As a matter of fact, God hadn't even created the wind yet. So we don't even have the problem of discerning between uh, spirit and wind or air or oxygen. 
It's almost uh, to the level of oxygen that the word ruah is sometimes used in a physical sense. Another time is uh, during the crossing of the Red Sea. That's in, in Exodus chapter 15. Uh, we read in Exodus chapter 15, verse 8, by the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Well, that's uh, the ruah of your nostrils. That's really the breath. And, the, of course, the surging water stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. And, of course, only God did that. So that has, uh, has to be reference to the Spirit of God, the Ruah of God. And then there's one more in, uh, in, the, in a prophetic passage. The passage comes from Ezekiel, uh, chapter 37, the first 14 verses. I'm not going to read all of that, but I'm going to read uh, a few of them. You know the story. It's the Valley of Dry Bones. And uh, Ezekiel sees a vision again of a valley full of dead bones. And uh, we read that the Spirit of the Lord uh, uh, blew upon the bones and they came to life. It goes like this. Then he said to me, prophesy to the, to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. But now, up to this point, uh, maybe this is just oxygen. But if we read just a little further, we read, I will put my breath in you. I will put my spirit in you. And you will live, says the Lord, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it, declares the Lord. So this uh, reference to Ruach uh, is uh, very frequently to the very Spirit of God. And it's rightly translated here, therefore, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit. And, of course, the, the results of this Spirit of the Lord upon his chosen one, Zerubbabel, is the flat-out prophecy that the temple will be constructed. Be, before, because we read in verse 7, What are you, almighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. In other words, this prophecy guarantees that the temple will be built because of divine intervention not by human effort, numerical resources, physical strength, but by the Spirit of God. And therefore, the temple will certainly be constructed. In spite of limited resources, because they were limited, in spite of uh, opposition from within the company of the returned exiles, which if you read uh, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai, it was the lethargy of the people within the covenant community, which was probably the single largest hindrance to progress in the rebuilding of the temple. To say nothing, of course, of the enemy that was enemy from without that was harassing them at all, all times. So in spite of limited resources, in spite of uh, the lethargy of the people, yet the ultimate purpose would prevail because it was not resting on human 
effort or human achievement or human resources, but on the power of the Spirit of God himself. Which brings us to uh, try to understand the words, uh, what are you, almighty mountain? Uh, what is the mountain uh, reference to be understood to be? Uh, is it a mount- mountains, of, mountains of opposition? Could be. It is, is it the mountains of rubble? Because remember, Jerusalem was at the top of a mount, something like a mountain around here, only not quite as steep, much more gradual and much longer. Uh, and uh, it was uh, ruins, simply devastation from 587 till this present time. Uh, probably this reference is to uh, the accumulation of all the opposition and all the uh, obstacles, including the, the mountains of rubble there. Before Zerubbabel, you will become a level ground. It'll be as though, though all, that, all those obstacles aren't there. Because, of course, the Spirit of God is in it, and that's the only reason. And therefore, uh, Zerubbabel will live to see the day when the capstone is placed. Don't know what that capstone is. It may have been uh, the stone that's set at the very uh, topmost point of one of the corners of the temple. Uh, some have suggested that uh, perhaps this should be read, the foundation laid. But uh, the rest of the passage uh, simply doesn't support that kind of thing because it keeps speaking of completion. And also, when it says, bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it, Actually, that's one word in Hebrew which is better translated grace, grace. It's something like the, uh, the song of celebration at the point of dedication. Uh, it would be similar to us singing, uh, to God be the glory, when, uh, when a kingdom venture is finally established, uh, a kingdom, uh, a church structure or a, a mission station or some other accomplishment. Uh, glory to God, a dedication ster- ceremony, the top stone rather than the foundation stone, the, the, rather than the beginnings or the finality, the completion is then celebrated. All right, verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to me, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you because it's only by the strength and blessing of God that this could be accomplished. We really uh, are in circumstances like that frequently in the kingdom, aren't we? Uh, There's no venture in the kingdom that seems to have all the resources uh, needed at at its disposal. And, And I think that's good, because then we would begin to trust our own human capacities and our human planning, our human efforts, it's good to have this sense of dependence upon God because when the, when the project is complete, then it's testimony to the power and grace and spirit of God rather than uh, to celebrate human achievement. And that's the case here. And that's the case in virtually all kingdom uh, projects of which I am aware. Not only will God receive the... the the credit for its accomplishment, but then Zerubbabel's leadership will be vindicated. Now, we're not saying he will get the credit, but his leadership will be vindicated. 
then you will know when, when the hands of Zerubbabel who laid the foundation also is there to direct the praise at, the, at, its, at, its, at its conclusion, then you'll know that it was God's word that did it and also that Zerubbabel was his hand-picked agent for leadership at that time. Which brings us to ask this question, who is this man Zerubbabel? And for that purpose, I have a much uh, clearer uh, uh, overhead to show you. Uh, First of all, this is the list of the last few kings who ruled in Jerusalem prior to the exile. Josiah was the reform king from 640 to 609 B.C. Remember, plus or minus, if you have if you have a commentator commentary that doesn't have these exact figures, they'll be close. They'll be within four to six years of them. And then Jehoahaz uh, succeeded him. Now, Jehoahaz was Josiah's son, and uh, he, had, he was first picked to succeed him on the throne. But by 609, things were very unstable in Palestine, and uh, the issue was still in doubt whether whether the Chaldeans from the north or the Egyptians from the south would uh, be successful in conquering Palestine. And for a while, since Jerusalem is in southern Palestine, for a while the Egyptians were uh, successful and they attacked and uh, Jehoahaz was king only three months and then he was carted off uh, to Egypt as a captive. And Jehoiakim succeeded him. But uh, the Egyptians very soon recognized that they were no match for the Chaldean army. After all, uh, Assyria had conquered Egypt before, and now the Chaldeans had conquered the Assyrians, and so the Assyrians were the threat to Egypt. And so within a very short time, Jehoiakim is, um, becomes a vassal of, uh, uh, of the Chaldean army. And we talked about that some time ago. And he reigned for uh, something like 11 years, 10 or 11 years at least. It reached from 609, somewhere in 609 to 597. Uh, Following him was Jehoiachin, who reigned again only three months and about 10 days. And he was carted off to Babylon. Um, And then Zedekiah was appointed uh, to be a king, and he reigned for about 10 years. And Zedekiah was the king at the time of the final destruction of Jerusalem in 587. And uh, Zedekiah was the one who uh, uh, resisted surrendering to Nebuchadnezzar's army. And finally, when Jerusalem collapsed, the general of the army brought Zedekiah out outside the city of Jerusalem and brought all all Zedekiah's relatives and uh, killed them all in front of Zechariah. Zechariah was forced to watch the massacre of his family and his grandchildren and his cousins and all, you know, all the potential royal successors of Zedekiah. And, uh, and then when the last one was slain, then they just simply pulled the eyeballs out of uh, Zechariah's head. So the last thing he ever saw was the massacre of his family and then Zedekiah, blind, was uh, led away to Babylon as a captive also, as a prize, because there was nothing better for a king than to bring um, 
a, subdue, a, a subjected king back as a prize. They put him up on public display and say, uh, see, we have conquered him. Uh, Zedekiah, uh, it says in the Bible, that was a very wicked person, but uh, he uh, seems to have had uh, some sort of repentance while he was in, in captivity. Now you say, well, if Zedekiah is the end of the line and all of his close relatives are now destroyed, then how can God's promise of a continuing line of the Davidic king be fulfilled with the coming of Jesus? Well, uh, that was fulfilled in another way. You see, Zedekiah had no business being king. He was simply a, um, a puppet. Zedekiah was the brother, a younger brother of Josiah. Here we have Josiah, whose son Jehoahaz reigned only a short time, then went into Egyptian exile, and that's the end of the line. And uh, then Jehoiakim succeeds him, and he reigned and went to Babylon as a captive. Then the Jehoiachin went to Babylon as a captive. And then Zedekiah is appointed, arbitrarily appointed, a governor by or king by Nebuchadnezzar but uh, he ends in disaster meanwhile Jehoiachin has been safely away in Babylon for all these ten years so when Zedekiah's extended family was massacred in the attempt to cut off the Davidic line remember the devil all through the Old Testament is trying to prevent the birth of the Savior and so the devil always tries to uh, cut off the lineage, the descendancy. And that's why in, in Genesis the devil gets uh, Cain to kill Abel. Because the devil thinks, oh, the Lord has made this mother promise, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Well, I'll fix that. Abel must be that line, so I'll get him slain and that'll be the end of that. But of course God raised up Shem. And so again and again and again and again, you see the devil trying to prevent, uh, to cut off the lineage with, which brings forth the Savior of the world. In fact, he came very close a few times. Remember Joash was uh, just a little seven-year-old boy and he had to be hidden in the temple till he was 15. And that's how close the devil once came within one little lad, seven-year-old boy, of snipping off this golden line through which the Savior of the world was to come. Well, the devil um, moves uh, Nebuchadnezzar's army to massacre Zedekiah and all his extended family. And he said, well, that's the end of his lineage and now no, and no Davidic lineage can survive. But God had already tucked Jehoiachin away in Babylonian captivity ten years before. And lo and behold, Jehoiachin, while he's in captivity, has a little boy whose name was Shealtiel. Now, Shealtiel never was a governor or a mayor or a king, and yet his name is listed in the lineage in Matthew chapter 1 through which Jesus was to be born. And again and again, Zerubbabel, not in this, pa in this book, but in other passages, is simply called uh, the son of Shealtiel. And then when we get to Matthew, chapter 1, it's uh, verses 11 and 12. 
the Holy Spirit moves Matthew to write as follows. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Now that happened to be the second deportation of the exile. Verse 12, After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Now you know why Zerubbabel is so important. Through Zerubbabel, the Savior of the world was born. You have a question. Um, so is Jeconiah another name for Jehoiakim? Yes. If you have an NIV, it says that in the footnote. And if you ask me why did he have two names, I don't know any more than I know why Bethlehem in the Bible is sometimes called Ephratah. And thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah. Two names for the same place. Uh, sometimes it's because there's an Aramaic name and a Jewish name. Sometimes because there's a Persian name even. Remember when the people were in exile, uh, for instance, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all ha- received Persian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar? Belteshazzar. One extra syllable from Belteshazzar. Okay, but that was his Persian name. Daniel was his Jewish name. And yes, this this Jeconiah is uh, Jehoiachin. So here Jehoiachin only reigned three months and ten days. And then off he was carted to Babylon. But you see this marvelous preserving grace of God that to make certain the, uh, the continuing lineage uh, which brings forth Jesus. Now I know we can ask a lot of other questions because Matthew chapter 1 verse 11 says, and Josiah, the father of Jehoiachin. Well, that's simply because uh, in the, Jew- the Jewish, uh, Jewish lineage, they didn't speak of grandson, great-grandson, great-great-grandson. They simply said, a son of, son of. As a matter of fact, uh, Matthew's account only lists 14 between each of these divisions. And uh, Matthew was the wanted this uh, biblical theological pattern apparently because he lists 14 generations between Abraham and David, 14 from David to the captivity, 14 from the captivity to Christ. And if you compare them with the Old Testament, Matthew makes big leaps, you know, he'll jump five generations. In this case, he jumps from a grandfather to a grandson, but in some cases, in verse 8 for instance, he jumps five generations. But that's simply because Matthew... uh, selects 14 of the most prominent during that period of time. And uh, if you say, well, why did he do that? Well, it's simply because the Hebrews liked a neat uh, uh, framework for, for, for their lists. And they also wanted to teach a lesson by the, the style itself. And so since he chooses 14 from Abram to David, which is a thousand years, 14 from David to captivity, which is about 400 years, and 14 from the captivity to Christ, which is about 600, 550 or so years. Uh, The point he wants to make is, as he says in verse 17, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. That's simply because Matthew writes his book, his gospel, for the Jewish readers, and he wants to convince them 
that Jesus is the promised descendant of David, and David's number happens to be 14. You know, every name in Hebrew has the corresponding number. I think that's where the, the, state, the statement originated, I got your number. <laughs> uh, every letter in the Hebrew alphabet has a corresponding letter value. And so if you were to transliterate your uh, name into Hebrew, you could also discover what your number is. Well, David's number is 14 because the Daleth, the D, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth is four. And there are two Ds in David, and four and four are eight. Now, there's an A, but vowels are zeros. So the A and the I in David count for zero. And the V, which is a wow in Hebrew, is a number six. So 4D plus 6V plus 4D is 14. And so Matthew uses this literary style, selects 14 prominent people in the right order all the time, always in the right order, historical order, but not every last one. In fact, sometimes he jumps over kings who were kings for 40 or more years. To convince the readers, even in the framework that he uses, that Jesus was the, son, was the descendant of Israel's great number 14, King David. Well, okay, so that's now, now you know where Shealtiel fits in. Uh, we don't know anything about him except that in God's providence he was a link, and that's enough to know about him, isn't it? A link in the chain which brought forth the Savior of the world. And now you know why Zerubbabel is so important and uh, his leadership is vindicated because Zerubbabel um, represents in his person the continuation of the, of the Davidic line through whom God would redeem the world through David's greater son. Let's move on to verse 10. Who despises a day of small things? Uh, that was always the complaint, you know, this is, and as a matter of fact, the temple that Zerubbabel and Joshua and, and Zechariah uh, provided leadership for building really was a very poor uh, comparison to Solomon's great temple. And it wasn't much by way of comparison to Herod's temple either, which was, again, rebuilt pretty much after the, uh, after the design of Solomon's temple. Uh, so it was a small thing, but don't despise the day of small beginnings because the end result was the salvation of the world through the coming of a, of a Savior. Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They'll rejoice. The plumb line simply represents the, the person in charge, sort of, sort of the chief engineer. Plumb line is measures to make things straight and true. And then we have this little strange um, interlude. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. Um, it seems like it's tossed in there and some commentators say, hey, that some, some scribe uh, got away from himself and wrote something in there that really doesn't fit the pattern. I think it belongs there. What this is, is a reference again to the Spirit of the Lord. 
We observed early on that the high priest wore this breastplate and it had seven eyes and the eye of the Lord is in every place keeping watch over the evil and the good, says Proverbs 15, verse 3. It represents the omnipresent spirit of God. And so this is, a, again, a reminder. Not by might nor by power, but by my, by my spirit. Zerubbabel will provide leadership. He's the lineage of David. The plumb line will be in his hands. And these seven eyes are the eyes of the Lord, which range throughout the whole earth. In other words, bracketed by the Spirit of God are the efforts of God's people under the leadership of his, hand, of his hand-picked person. So it fits there. Maybe we should even take away the brackets. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? See, that question hadn't been answered yet. We mentioned that it's the two leaders. Um, again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two golden pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? This, this nice dialogue to force him to concentrate his attention. You see, a question, first it's not answered. He, re, he rephrases the question and then finally the answer so he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. And who are the anointed? Joshua, chapter 3, and Zerubbabel, chapter 4. So there's just two offices, you see? You're just the kingly elder's office and the priestly deacon's office. Isn't that right? But who's writing this? Who's receiving the message? A prophet! So a prophet, Zechariah, is right there. Uh, as, the, um, as a matter of fact, the, the very channel, the very channel through which the authority of Joshua and Zerubbabel. What, in the final analysis, does the lampstand represent? Huh? We already said that the oil represents <clears throat> the, the ordination, the authorization, the qualification of God's Spirit. But we didn't say anything about the lampstand yet. Well, the lampstand represents <clears throat> the witnessing community, the light of the world. Uh, a lamp or a candle on a, on a high place cannot be hid, right? So the lampstand represents the witness of the believing community, the covenant community in the world. Uh, Israel was called to be a light to the nations. Isaiah had said that hundreds of years before. They refused to do their job. They had to be disciplined into captivity. Now they return and they're reminded, okay, now be the light of the world that you're supposed to be. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the church, I think we may use the word for the church in the Old Testament. At least uh, Stephen, the first martyr, did didn't he, when he spoke of the church in the wilderness, in the, in the book of Acts. Church is the called ones. The, it's the community of faith. Both the church of the Old Testament and the church of the New Testament is called to be a light to the nations and a bright light, not just one little flickering candle, but a whole lampstand with an unlimited supply of, of, uh, of fuel so that it won't go out, it won't run out. And 49 lights to make a brilliant uh, testimony. And of course, this isn't simply uh, you know, interesting speculation. 
the Bible tells us that that's what the symbol means. Because in the book of Revelation, we have the church, the, the, the message to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And what do we read in the very first chapter, the 20th verse? The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So there you have the biblical basis. So the Spirit of God flows his, as the ultimate source of light and the leadership is there to orchestrate that light and the believing communion exists to reflect that light to the nation. The Qumran community, the Qumran community, that's uh, getting to be more and more familiar terminology, uh, maybe the Isaiah Scrolls, you know, that the Qumran community was discovered uh, about uh, two decades ago and uh, all of these Almost all the Old Testament was discovered in, an, in earlier manuscripts than it had, had ever been at our disposal, including the Isaiah scrolls. You know, liberals had said that Isaiah was simply a compilation of the Masoretes in the 9th century A.D. That's about a thousand years ago. And then uh, the Isaiah scrolls were discovered in this, in this monastery uh, in, uh, in uh, so southern Judea, and lo and behold, a manuscript that was dated by carbon-14 datings to be about 100 years B.C. had Isaiah, just like our 66 chapters in our Bible today. Well, in that Qumran community, uh, from their literature, they expected two Messiahs. They expected a priestly Messiah, like Joshua, and they expected a kingly Messiah, like Zerubbabel. And maybe that's where some in the church have gotten the impression that there are two offices because of this uh, Qumran expectation of two representatives. I'm just speculating on that score now. I'm not sure at all. But it's interesting that they expected two. We're going to see in the next chapter that uh, they were wrong in that expectation too. Even though here at this point in biblical history, we have two anticipations of uh, the priestly and the kingly. And of course, I've been saying often enough that Zechariah represents the, the prophetic. I see that uh, I didn't quite make it to the middle of five, but I think we will. So let's take a break. That's right. Oh, time goes so, by so fast. Well, you know, they have, they just, the, the main, the Isaiah scrolls were 1948. They just, they, uh, they, for the last, for more, for about a decade, they kept finding, finding love caves, you know, but that is true. Yeah. It's, so, you, you cut my agent down. I'm grateful, sir. I'm a kid again. Where's that drum?